Welcome to Researching the Rainbow. I'm your host, Raza. I'm a queer researcher here at the University of Kent. And this podcast is for everyone who loves to explore the big queer questions in the exciting world of LGBTQ plus research. Hi, everyone. With me today, I've got Saskia, whom I will ask to introduce herself. Hello, my name is Saskia Henneke. I have just completed my master's in international criminology in a consortium program with the University of Kent and Erasmus Rotterdam. And my research is regarding experiences of queerness in Uganda and implications of colonial legacies and imperial projects within modern queer experiences. Thank you, Saskia. We're really, really lucky to have you here today. So you told me a little bit about your research. Tell me also why it matters. So historically, access to full citizenship in post-colonial countries in the whole world has been sexed and gendered and racialized. And so being researchers here in the UK, in any country that has exerted a lot of colonial power over the world, it is really important to research our own legacies. Thank you for explaining that. I'm really interested in relation to what you said. Why did you pick Uganda as the place to do your field work? Uganda really can be taken, without reducing it too much, it really can be taken as a perfect case study in a lot of my interests. So for one thing, practically most people speak English. That is a commonly enough spoken language in the capital city of Kampala. When you look at nearly 80 countries that currently still criminalize homosexuality to some degree, more than half of them are former British colonies. So Uganda fits that bill. It's kind of representative in some way of that larger trend. And also, I, from personal experience, I spent a summer in my undergrad in Rwanda, which is a neighboring country, and I met an American lawyer who was volunteering with an organization in Uganda. And so that was like seven years ago, and that was a part of how I first got interested in queer organizing in Uganda. Yeah, and so I was looking forward to revisiting that part of the world There's also a really interesting media environment there where you have news media, tabloids, you have international media, all of these very powerful actors competing for the same airspace in Uganda, as well as the explosion of social media and TikTok during the pandemic. All of these are creating a perfect storm that is a perfect environment to dive into and study. Thank you. That's absolutely fascinating. Now, you did say a moment ago about the importance of researchers from countries that have exerted and continue to exert colonial power, researching the damage we've done and continue to do. I wonder, how would you say your own identity, who you are, where you're from, how has that affected your research, either in terms of what you looked at or, you know, what people told you or perhaps didn't tell you and how you analyzed and understood your data and and these narratives of people whom you've spoken to. Yeah, and I will say I was like endlessly anxious about my role as a white person showing up in Uganda. Like I, I was having anxious nightmares before going that I would get there and, you know, somebody would sit there and be like, who the heck are you to come here? and want to hear our stories. And I would, cause I would just be like, you're absolutely right. And I would get on a plane and go home. <laughs> that was my anxiety. But I also knew that I'd spent months and months working with the scholarship of decolonizing research to decolonize my work as much as I possibly could. And so there's things that I did such as going with as little of a plan as possible, going and planning on allowing my early conversations to guide my research focuses. 
But I also, in terms of other, you know, aspects of my identity, I am queer myself, I'm bi, and that that definitely opened some avenues. That, along with my whiteness, like, opened the most doors. It is quite frightening how much people would trust me with their stories because I'm white. And then if they asked me if I was queer, I wasn't, it wasn't the first thing I would say to someone is like, hey, by the way, I, I'm a part of the community. But when it did come up, it was kind of a relief. And then we could actually share moments of what it looks like to queer code yourself here and there. And, and those conversations were always quite fun. Ultimately, I try to be as reflexive of, as possible about my identity. And I also interweave it throughout my dissertation, trying to remain reflective. And, and that's why I take an auto-ethnographic approach in some instances. It's meant to be self-aware of the fact that all of this work is through the lens of, you know, some white kid who's grew up thousands of miles away. And yet I think there's something to be said about how people relate and how people share with others depending on who they are. Like if you were interviewing me on a different project, what I'd answer if I knew or inferred how much of our kind of experiences and identities we share might be less, right? I, I wouldn't tell you things that I think you'd know already. So perhaps this difference can be a useful vehicle for conversations. Right, that um, kind of outsider experience. And you already gave me some examples of how, as a researcher, you can decolonize your work. Are there any others that you'd like to share? Mm. For any researchers who are listening and thinking, how do I do that? Yeah, I think the most important thing is that daily reflexivity. I had an interaction early on with somebody. It was just a phone call and they called me Dr. Saskia. And I kind of walked away from the conversation being like, ooh, I have clearly carried myself with enough awareness of your situation, uh, kind of awareness of the gravity of it, as well as sensitivity to whatever. And I just like felt so gassed about that. And then I sat down a little later that day to kind of like jot down some notes. And I was like, crap, I just I it's it's my my whiteness, like it just is this it carries this authority and this sense of so you just kind of have to like constantly reflect on the tiny interactionisms, and how they might not be exactly what you thought they were. Thank you. That's really interesting. What you write about in your work is incredibly powerful in just the insurmountable challenges that queer and gender queer people in Uganda face. But you also write about queer counterpower. And I'm really, really interested in hearing more about that. What does it look like? How does it manifest? One of the themes that I'm really looking at is how power is exerted and how narratives reflect that power. Most often those can be these dominant narratives constructed by the state. And theoretically, there is this concept of necropolitics, which is about how power is exerted upon these marginalized, which is racialized, sexualized as marginal bodies. And they are excluded from full state citizenship through processes of immigration, through access to healthcare, etc., etc. And that power can be so totalized over black and queer bodies that my argument is that really just about any small act of counterpower is meaningful and is it is is counterpower even in these tiny little instances so i talk about counterpower in order to illuminate the ways in which black queer people are rebelling against state power so state power can be so 
totalitarian. It can be so all-encompassing and, and excluding Black queer people from access to full citizenship through access to healthcare and migration status and all kinds of different ways. So that totality of power over Black queer people. So my argument is that even in tiny interactions, Black queer people are enacting counterpower against the state. So a couple of my favorite examples one of them was a tattoo that one of my participants had. He's gay, and he tattooed the name of a woman onto his upper bicep in order to basically hide his sexuality so that his family might still think that he had a girlfriend. And so this sacrifice that he made on his own body, the tattoo actually had each letter was the first letter of one of his siblings' names. So that in this sacrifice, which was tattooed to his body, this lie that he was telling in order to preserve the relationship that he had with his family, it also embodies almost perfect symbolism of the sacrifice of, that he was making and of his relationship to his family. So that is, yeah, this enactment of counterpower. You're, you're tattooing it quite literally onto your skin and wearing this lie, but it's a very, very autonomous decision and a very intentional lie that is all about the sacrifices that we do have to make as queer people, this negotiations of being in and out of the closet and wearing this lie, but making it his own and, and wearing it with pride. Another favorite of mine is the way that queer people took over TikTok and have used TikTok to create a community across the country. And this part of what's cool about this one is that a lot of the queer community is centered around Kampala, the capital city. But Uganda is a huge country with lots of rural areas. And where people do have access to smartphones, as is kind of growing and growing, like I said, TikTok really blew off over the pandemic. And one of the trends that you can see is queer people using TikTok to be queer, like whether it's trans women who are using their embodiment of femininity as, as a bit of a joke, but a self-determined joke and a, an, again, an autonomous joke, participating in it, choosing to participate in this way that is an authentic expression of self. And so you can get queer kids far out in rural Uganda showing videos of a queer male-bodied, so I say that because if you are a trans woman, you are most often still perceived by society as male. So somebody male-bodied but who's putting on women's clothes and doing a bit, whether it's a silly dance or putting on this character, and then this queer kid far out in, in rural Uganda is showing this video, sharing it with their parents who are perhaps very homophobic, and they all get to kind of laugh about it, and the parents really don't realize that this is this terrifying specter of homosexuality that they've heard so much about. They just see somebody being a little bit goofy on camera and everybody kind of gets to participate in it and see that it's not so scary. It's kind of sensitizing everyone. And, and meanwhile, it's having a huge reach. And even if it has, it may even be so clear to us as to have a rainbow flag in the caption, but that is not universally understood as gay. And so everybody gets to see this enactment of queerness, participate with it, engage with it, enjoy it, without even realizing it. And that is in direct defiance of the state power that is trying to keep Black queer people marginalized. So you gave this evocative example of parents watching with their queer child content from TikTok that has these codes of this information that is known for some but not others that you know you're watching another queer person 
I want to draw out examples of why this matters so much. Because the perceived unknown other, the narratives of queer people and genderqueer people are vilified to a degree that you imagine monsters, right? Right. That invisibility that adds to the stigma that adds to discrimination, violence. Can you tell me more about what the perceptions around queer and genderqueer people are in Uganda? Yeah. So it's hard to talk about without diving into years and years of colonial history. To give you a bit of a summary, British colonial law introduces anti-sodomy legislation alongside its Christian moralizing mission, throughout which a majority of Ugandans are Christianized. Christianity is a dominant religion there, but it's a lot more than that. So Uganda has a really rich history of sexual diversity before the introduction of Christianity. And there's a really incredible story of actually what is kind of the foundational narrative of modern Uganda. The last pre-colonial king, who's called the Kabaka, Mwanga II, who was the king of the Kingdom of Buganda, which encompassed modern Kampala, a large part of not the entirety of Uganda, but a large part of what, yeah, the capital city of Kampala. And he is evidenced as having some sort of queerness. And he would likely, we, as far as we understand it, he would likely sleep with some of his male pages sometimes. One day, or over the course of a period of time, he starts murdering some of his pages. Now, he was also very anti-colonial. So he, may have been murdering them because they were suddenly refusing his sexual advances because of their newfound Christian morality. Or he may have been murdering them because they represented this colonial import that he was rejecting, whereas his father had been very welcoming of the British Christian colonists. As he has murdered around 30 of his pages, 22 of them are canonized by the Catholic Church. And to this day, that is the biggest holiday in Uganda is Martyrs Day. And it happens every June and thousands, hundreds of thousands of people pilgrimage to Kampala to celebrate these martyrs. But when I talk about how narratives are constructed and misconstrued, the fact that homosexuality, queerness was likely a part of this story is not taught at all. Most people don't know it. Even queer people don't know it necessarily. They just see it as, oh, he killed them because they were Christian, because that's the story that got taught. So that kind of sets the stage of truly one of the foundational narratives of modern Uganda. So Uganda today is a very Christian nation, but a lot of conservative and traditionalist leaders have also taken this specter of homosexuality and turned it into a symbol of Western globalization. And it has become politically a tool to reject globalizing forces and paint the neocolonial liberal import of Western values under this broadband of queerness. That is where a lot of anti-homosexuality today comes from. It is a nationalist project that is very, very African and across a lot of post-colonial African states, which call queerness un-African and create this dominant narrative and have been very successful at that. So that all takes place towards the end of the 19th century. And Throughout early 20th century and until 1950, you have anti-sodomy legislation that is 
what officially criminalizes queerness. That is the main legislation that exists. There's been sort of more modern iterations of it. But it's important to understand that while this is all introduced by a colonial power, it is very much co-opted into a lot of modern nationalist political movements that are African. And I say African because it exists in more countries than Uganda, but a lot of post-colonial African states have co-opted an anti-homosexuality agenda that is meant to be against what they perceive as a Western imposition of values and a neo-colonial imposition of values. So it's very ironic. It kind of is hard to wrap your brain around because it doesn't seem to make sense. But it is important to understand that this is not just a colonial import. It is something that has been largely co-opted by nationalist projects, but that neo-colonial power does continue to be a part of it. If you take in the early 2000s, American evangelical presence was a really big part of how the anti-homosexuality bill was introduced in 2009, which is how Uganda really became the poster child for anti-homosexuality legislation. And that's another reason that Uganda remains one of the biggest names in talking about the persecution of queerness in the world. This legislation was really inspired by American evangelicals uh, and their mission in Uganda. But the narrative around the legislation really took on a life of its own that is really problematic, including the BBC in 2011 calls Uganda the worst place in the world to be gay, which is a really problematic and othering, exoticizing label to paint Uganda with. That just isn't true. Thank you. As you said already, the impact of colonial processes and powers on Uganda, its legacy is still felt and co-opted in ways that you've described. I guess many people listening would be thinking about undoing the damage or how can queer communities or people in general support queer people and genderqueer people in Uganda. But what would you say to someone who comes to that and says, well, isn't that, isn't any form of support from Western organizations, even if it's just financial support and nothing else, isn't that reproducing colonial power? And where does that leave queer communities in Uganda? So if someone comes up to me and says that, I am just going to wholeheartedly agree. Like that is kind of the the cheeky thing as an academic is we can poke a lot of holes in the system without offering a lot of solutions. And in a lot of ways, that's what I've done. I don't offer much in the way of solution, but I do place a lot of emphasis in my dissertation about critiquing the way that transnational organizing works right now. And that's to say that from the outset, Transnational organizing has injected so much Western money into queer organizing in Uganda, but in a way that reproduces these hierarchies such that you have one large umbrella network that is the only organization that's seen as legitimate to the international regime. And they have been trained in the way of what legitimate organizing looks like, of how to write down their reports, of how to write their documents, of how to request funding. And that has structured the whole system into reproducing an idea that the the way the West does it is correct and, and anything else is incorrect. So it has also warped their goals and forced them to focus on things that they might not otherwise have focused their organizing on, such as, you know, HIV and AIDS funding. Not that that's not very important, but it is a 
more saturated field relative to other issues. Western funding has also forced an emphasis on legislative goals in a way that might not have otherwise, again, been prioritized. So this is the anti-homosexuality bill of 2009, which was a, a version of it was passed and then rescinded. Whether it's the bill, whether it's legal aid, helping people that are arrested, imprisoned, etc. Again, important things, but we continue to impose organizational goals that might not necessarily have been chosen. The other problem that's come out of all of this is by only highlighting this one network, which is meant to take all of this funding and trickle it out to the rest of the organizing community, they have limited resources as it is, so there's only so much that they can trickle out. It has put them into a position, that organization within the community, of being seen as a gatekeeper of all of the funding. In my dissertation, I really paint this picture of a web of distrust that is a system set up by an orientation towards funding from the West. So because everyone sees Western funding as the best way to support their cause, you have this, yeah, this web of distrust whereby one of the large organizations that's getting all the money is seen as gatekeeping and eating all of the money. And then you have smaller and mid-sized organizations that feel that distrust towards the large organization. And then you have queer people who have distrust towards everyone. A lot of queer people have been outed by organizations that were meant to be working for them. There's rumors of organizations calling in police raids on their own community members in order to create a news media environment that brings in more funding. And whether or not that's true, these rumors all exist and, and nobody really trusts one another. Everybody feels like they're being left out of some huge pot of money. Even the organization that is, you know, ostensibly getting the majority of funding that does come from the West, they too see their Western allies as gatekeeping and wanting to maintain this hierarchy such that the organization will always depend on that funding. And that kind of all fits into this concept of the nonprofit industrial complex, which is a concept that as long as people are salaried by their work within nonprofits, they don't have any incentive to resolve the issues that they are meant to be working on. So all of this is to say that it was one of the most disheartening experiences that I had was seeing how little people trusted the organizations that were meant to work for them, how little one organization would trust the other. There's a highly factionalized environment where you have an organization that's for trans women in rural Uganda, you have queer women with disability, like you have just so many different hyper-factionalized organizations. At the end of the day, it's this system, this hierarchized system of Western funding that is prohibiting like a truly radically inclusive organizing movement. Thank you. That's really fascinating. And as you said a moment ago, your work isn't that to offer solutions. In fact, we talked about how it would not be right for you or us in the West to offer solutions in the first place. But what can be done? I'm not asking for your opinion. I'm asking for what your participants told you. What can be done so global queer communities can support queer people in Uganda? 
I don't know that my participants would have the answer either because I mostly spoke with like really low income and low education queer people that were, were really just like stuck in this system and wouldn't necessarily have the answer either because everyone I spoke with was you know the person saying that it's so and so that's keeping all the money it's so and so but I have the most excitement about organizations that are for one reason or another stuck outside of this entire web of distrust so there was one church actually and because it is a faith-based organization it is outside of this regime and it does not get funding from the west really that also meant that it was organized in a much more radical way where it was just this guy who starts, you know, collecting people, which is how all organizations start, right? Is collecting people in his room, one after the other. What do you need? How can I help you get these services? He just kind of would figure it out. He called himself a solutions man. And he had been pretty religious growing up, but very much burned by the church and by his experience with a pastor who outed him to his community. And then one day he realized how much his spirituality was lacking from not only his life, but all of these people that he had gathered. And spirituality is at the heart of so many Ugandan communities that the fact that it is largely absent from queer organizing within this web of distrust and this regime that I'm describing, it makes no sense at all. It just makes no sense. And it, it flies in the face of what community building looks like in Uganda. And, and it, I think that really illuminates how much this has been modeled after Western organizing, right? So yeah, so I'm excited about this inclusive ministry that this guy has created because I think that it has the most radical potential to connect with queer churches across the world, as he is doing. He, you know, so he is the only inclusive ministry in Uganda, but he is connected with a lot of inclusive ministries around the world. It's hard to say. It's definitely possible that the same structure could be reproduced with his method of organizing. It's definitely possible. And I, I that's what I don't have the answer to, how to avoid that. I don't really know how to like grow what he's doing without injecting it with the same problems like that are so inherent to the way the nonprofit industrial complex works at the moment. But it's interesting nonetheless. It is absolutely fascinating, not just interesting. And you've told us so many really impactful stories, made us really listen. But what's the one message you would like people to really take on from your research? If you had to summarize it in a sentence, what would that sentence be? Uh, such a difficult question. I think to summarize everything, we can really return to what our foundational concepts of queerness are, which is tearing down binaries, tearing down cis-normativity, het-normativity, and finding truly radical ways to connect and really rejecting a lot of these prescribed structures of society. So my research is meant to highlight lived experiences of queerness in Uganda and indicate how they embody those missions. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure talking to you, but I really can't let you go without asking what's next for your research. So I'm so glad you asked, because as a part of my broader interest in how narratives are constructed, how dominant narratives are constructed by historical sources of power, and how queer communities can be participants in their own counterpower and counter narrative, I'm turning my research into a podcast. So the idea there is that I have all these gorgeous stories and recordings of my participants telling their stories, and this podcast is meant to be an avenue for them to tell their stories and, and reach a broader audience with those stories. Again, obviously 
fully anonymized. But yeah, participating in the counter narrative and producing this piece of counter power through, uh, through storytelling. And if people want to read more of your work or listen to these stories or just look you up, where should they go? Yeah, so I've got I've got Twitter. Uh, that's at Saskia Hen, H-E-N-N. And I think it'll be in the show notes. I've also got a portfolio, saskiaheneke.myportfolio.com. A lot of journalism work in DC. You can see me hanging out with Joe Biden and stuff like that. Oh, that was such a name drop. <laughs> uh, and <laughs> the podcast and all that, it doesn't exist just yet, but but you can definitely find my work there when it's done. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for speaking to us. We wish you all the best with your research and we'll definitely check out that Twitter handle. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to follow our wonderful guests to find out more about their work. And if you love this, just you wait till you hear the next one. Make sure you share and subscribe and join us next time for more Big Queer Questions here on Researching the Rainbow.